Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Did I step on your trumpet or did I lump, lump them in with you? Did he step on your trumpet or did he lump? Hi, this is John Thompson, and I remember the first time I heard Daniel Smith and his band Danielson. I'm sure you do too, even if your first time was just now. In my case, it was the mid-1990s, and I was in my office in the True Tunes store. At that point, we got so much music sent to us for review that I could not possibly listen to at all. But the head of Tooth & Nail Records had sent me a tape. He called me ahead of time to make sure I watched for it. He didn't tell me much, just that I needed to make some time to listen to this kid, Daniel Smith, that it was like nothing I had ever heard. Boy, was he right. those days, I had sort of a loose system to help me focus on the music that was really worth listening to. I had several staff members who would listen to demos as they worked in the store and would separate the proverbial wheat from the chaff. They would send encouraging notes back to the folks we just couldn't help, but would put the better submissions in a special bin for me to listen to and consider for possible write-ups in our magazine or to stock in the store. I also occasionally had other friends whose tastes I trusted who would come in just to listen to music for me. Mark Robertson, later of This Train and Rich Mullins Ragamuffin Band, was one of those guys. I remember at one point I had about six or seven US mail bins full of cassettes and CDs to listen to and just no time. Mark offered to come in and sort through it for me. He managed to get those hundreds of submissions down to just a couple of dozen and would write little notes on each one. Oh my gosh, they were hilarious. Whether the music was good or not so good. Somehow Mark had gotten his hands on the Danielson tape that Brandon from Tooth and Nail had sent. The other staff members simply had no idea what to make of it. There was a piece of paper with it that had question marks and random phrases on it, but Mark had seemed to sense that there was something interesting going on. I wish I could remember exactly what he said, but the note basically read something like, I don't know what this is, but definitely listen to it. 
When I put that Danielson tape in, all I could do was grin. The music was imaginative, confident, and defined, but the vocals were done with a sort of character treatment. Daniel Smith pitched his voice way up high and spoke more than he sang. The result sounded more like the soundtrack to a psychedelic puppet show than any kind of commercial alternative music I had ever heard. It was wild. I loved it. I wondered if it was for real, but song after song kept grabbing me. That first album, called A Prayer for Every Hour, had 24 tracks. Get it? And I later found out it was a college thesis project. All I knew was that this guy was committed to his art, way more than he was concerned about being popular. I was impressed. Later, at the Cornerstone Festival, when I got to see him perform, with his family members as his band, dressed in matching nurse uniforms, and him sporting a massive homemade tree costume, I just shook my head. This guy was something else. Daniel Smith whether with his band Danielson or as a solo artist known as Brother Danielson, has been forging his own artistic path for over 26 years. He has also made a significant impact as a producer, having helmed the massively influential Seven Swans album for Sufjan Stevens and Ten Stones for Woven Hand, among others. Interestingly, Despite his unapologetic focus on spiritual subject matter, Smith's music is actually more respected and appreciated by mainstream music fans than Christians. With the notable exception of the Cornerstone Festival community, Danielson's success came almost entirely in the mainstream. After doing a few records for Tooth & Nail, they signed with the indie label Secretly Canadian for a bit, and then launched their own imprint, Sounds Familiar. In fact, Sufjan Stevens, who had toured with Danielson, had a similar trajectory to his career. Danielson, this odd-sounding indie folk pop group from New Jersey, is still making fascinating art that deals unapologetically with gospel issues and yet is virtually ignored by Christian music fans. Most Christian artists I speak with, however, would love to have a fraction of the mainstream acceptance, credibility, and admiration that Danielson enjoys. So. What gives? Is there something to be discovered here? I think so. And now let's dive into my conversation with Daniel Smith. Daniel and I got together at StoryForge, a creative workspace and studio in Nashville. Chris White from Electric Jesus was with us too. We'll talk with him about the Electric Jesus film in a future episode though. For now, it's mostly me and Daniel. So here we go. Dan, welcome to the True Tunes podcast. It's great to thank you, John. To have you here. Great and to be here. You embody a lot of the spirit that makes, in my opinion, music exciting and adventurous oh, uh, to you. listen to. <laughs> you were kind of coming out right at the tail end of when True Tunes was still a physical record store and a concert venue. And I remember seeing some shows at your at your venue when I was living at Jesus People. Oh gosh, I didn't. So I that was ninety five. Oh my gosh! I yeah, about that. And uh, so, anyway, but you never played at True Tunes, did you? No, we. I. I hadn't at that time. So that's '95. I had finished Prayer for Every Hour before I moved to Jesus People, and I just sat on it. I just felt like, I felt like, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like God said, "Don't do anything with this out." That my. That's my dream. It's been my dream my whole life is to make an album and get signed and and play music 
and record and write and that was uh, and so I felt like I had finished up four years at art school up in uh, North Jersey Rutgers University in New Brunswick uh, yes yeah, senior my senior thesis all led up to um, kind of the debut of the band we weren't called Danielson yet we were called the carrot top five <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact. <laughs> I did not know that. Uh, and that <laughs> uh, I, I think I like the name change. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Uh, so uh, uh, and it was it was that final year. Uh, that's ninety four. That final year uh, in art school. It was it was very much this, just this kind of spiritual reconnection with God. Like, and it was combined with just this longing to connect with my my parents and my siblings, and my childhood. And along with that was just, you know, yeah, wanting to connect with God through prayer and reading the Bible again. And, and it was this, and it really, we were talking about Howard Finster earlier. The year before that, I had gone down to Paradise Gardens on a road trip, I think maybe the summer before this year. Uh, so that's 90, yeah, same time period, 93. Um, and just experiencing Paradise Gardens, walking the, property seeing these paintings I felt like that was the beginning of God saying I, I, I want to I have some things I want you to do I want you to stop just ignoring me wow. <laughs> you know so that so now that I'm thinking about it that was that was really amazing uh, and it was just more you know, I grew up in a Christian home and the evangelical scene in the 70s and 80s uh, my parents came out of the Jesus movement uh, the charismatic Catholic movement actually because they were both they came out of, uh, like, my dad was in the, he was studying to be a priest right. for seven years, and then he, and my mom was a nun, so <laughs> we definitely came out of the Catholic <laughs> culture. But I would say that that still counts as part of the Jesus movement. Well, know. yeah, exactly. So the charismatic Catholic scene where they finally allowed acoustic guitars in the, in the, in the, yeah, Vatican II in the, in the mass, that my dad was, he was 60, whatever, 64, probably, he was playing acoustic guitar, you know, in the masses. And he, he had a big song. So, that's true, yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, so he wrote Our God Reigns, which is now all around the world, uh, he wrote that in 74, yeah. and what, what I love so much about that story is that that song and your dad's name again Lenny Smith yeah I just want to get that Lenny Smith <laughs> yeah the great Lenny Smith uh, and you know he uh, I grew up hearing him write songs every night as we're you know us kids are trying to fall asleep he's in the other end of the house with his acoustic guitar writing scripture songs he always would write songs with scripture in them that was his thing and uh, and one of his songs Our God Reigns uh, um, yeah, again, 74, there was a traveling preacher, and I, I wish I could remember his name, came through the church we were going to. It was a church called the Gospel Temple, and it was a Jesus people church, you know, Jesus movement church. Hippies with bare feet, and I mean, I, I, as, a, as a three-year-old, I remember that. But, uh, anyway, a preacher came through, heard the congregation singing Our God Reigns, and loved it so much, he taught people, he went around the world teaching people the song. Right. It was never recorded. Right. It went around, so that's the most folk level right. <laughs> uh, story you can get, you know, which probably can't happen anymore. But yeah, so that, uh, that and so he, he was kind of, he was kind of a star in the, in the church circles, oh, yeah. you know, so, 
So I grew up with him leading worship in various churches over the years. Um, but he's also, uh, he's a radical. He's, he's, oh, yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's very into theology and he's, he does not like uh, religiousness, right. if you know what I mean. So anytime that some, you know, man-made rules would creep into the, into whatever church we were going to, he'd, he'd call the authorities on it and then he'd get fired. <laughs> so, and that, so we went to, I don't know, five, six, seven churches growing up. Right, right. Oh, it's Lenny Smith, the author of Our God Reigns, will you lead worship? Right. Yes, of course. And then he, and it'd be great. And then. So do you think that that kind of formed your attitude and entitled you to be kind of an outsider as an artist? Possibly. I, uh, I mean, as a, as a young kid, I loved drawing. And so I was kind of, I think in second grade, my teacher told my parents, you know, your, your son can really draw. You should give him art lessons. So I, it became this thing where he's, he's the artist, you know? And so the music thing was something I always loved. I mean, I remember listening to the Beatles records when I was five, you know, and that's once you hear that, you can't go back. You know, once you hear Revolver or, or the White Album. So it was this combination of I always loved music, I always wanted to be a songwriter because my dad's my hero and I want to be like him. And at the same time, I loved to draw. So those two things were happening at the same time. Uh, the reason I went to art school was because I, I was excited about being around creative thinking, you know, whereas the the, the music school in this, at the same university was very classical, you know, very, it, it was about, you know, just kind of a more, unlike, unlike John's class, John Mark Painter's class yesterday, where they're, it's a music class, but they're talking about creative concepts and ideas, and I was really excited about that. So it was those two things happening at the same time, loving music, I'd, I was always putting bands together since I was, I don't know, 14, you know, we'd have band, every day after school, we'd either skateboard or we'd cover Echo and the Bunnymen songs and Cure songs and <laughs> Joy Division songs. <laughs> so um, what's yeah. interesting to me is that, and this is why I kind of drill into this a little bit for the conversation here, is I think that we're all a combination of our instincts, our, you know, whatever's in our DNA, but also yeah. the, the access we have to the resources around us and the Absolutely. encouragement we get from the people around us. And so you've got this outsider father but who's also got a certain structure to what he does it might not seem like it to some people but there's a definite structure to Lenny's oh, yeah. thinking and and For then sure. you go to art school instead of music school and you want to do music but a lot of people my first impression when I heard your music was this is the musical equivalent of outsider folk art mm. It's not folk music in the way most people think of folk music with a person strumming a guitar and it sounds pretty. Right. But it's it's provocative outsider folk art music. And that's what reminded me of Howard Finster, who I was such an enormous fan of. Yeah. And I thought when I saw you at Cornerstone the first time, I was like, this is the musical version of a Howard Finster painting. So yeah. when you said that that was such an influence, oh, I yeah, thought, oh, yeah. How, how well, that I? was uh, definitely part of the presentation. Um, and equally influenced by Velvet Underground and, and Andy Warhol. And, and that there's not a lot of examples where, you know, I'm going to a, quote, high art art school where music is considered uh, a low art pop form. 
so you can't bring music into that world because then it's but Andy Warhol did it and it everybody should be over it you know what I mean like it uh and so I was I was excited about that and I was excited about at the time uh late 80s early 90s in the indie scene you go see pavement you go see Sonic Youth they're dressed in flannels and just you know work clothes I grew up doing construction so that's what I would wear when I was working that wasn't something I want to wear on stage so I thought, oh, well, look at all these amazing videos of, you know, Motown performances and, and these where, where there's choreography and, 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 and outfits, you know, and people look like they, they want to be up there and entertain. And I thought that was much more exciting. So that's when we started the, the outfits to go along with the music. But what's interesting to me also is that as outsider as it might be, and, and the fact that you took that art approach you still were very obvious about the spiritual aspects of what you were doing. Yeah. There was no bashfulness. There was no like hiding the Christian nugget inside the biscuit kind of a thing. Right, yeah. And yet most mass audiences didn't get it, but it seemed that it was outside of the church where more people resonated with your work than inside the church. We had the church. this... Con- this- I don't know if it was good or bad. I, I eventually took it as a compliment, but we were definitely, you know, too weird for the Christian culture, mainstream culture, and too Christian for the mainstream indie rock culture. But in between there, there were all these people that would come out to the shows. And so you'd have people from all kinds of backgrounds who liked that odd rub of, you know, of, you know, just kind of spiritual conversation, spiritual journey. Uh, you know, lyrics and thoughts and um, imagery too, uh, and, and then with music that I don't know what it is, just, just songs that I liked and it sounded good to me. So I think the outsider. I'm not really an outsider since I went. You know, since I'm I'm aware of what I'm doing. So you know, uh, <laughs> it's hard to get outside. I'm, tra- I'm trained, so I can't. Pre- I you know I can't pretend to be an outsider. I'd be a right. I'd be a fraud if I said I was. Uh, but. I'm influenced by a lot of that stuff, and I do. I have adopted some of, uh, kind of like tools where I try to not think about certain things. I think about certain things, and that's and it's certain times I try not to think about certain. You know, it's in the creative process. Sure. And see where it goes. So now, as you have been doing this for 25 years yeah. or so. What is the landscape like for you? What kind of career have you been able to establish? You're you're still going. You're still making records. You're you're collaborating with different people. You're so just tell me about what life is like for you now and how do you make it work? Well, because I started in the indie scene, the, you know, in the early 90s there's no illusions that you're going to make your living doing this. I did construction for all, well, you know, summers all through high school and college. And then after art school, you get an art degree, what, you can't get a job with that. So I went back to carpentry for years. And at the same time, was making Danielson records. Um, so it was, it was, you know, it was being financed by my day job. Uh, now, uh, probably, I think mid, around 2005, I, Sounds Familiar started to, and that's the record label that I had started in 99, put out the first uh, it was the Tri Danielson record on vinyl. But by mid-2000s, my production work, producing other bands, putting out their records, uh, I was able to go full-time for a while. 
uh, until streaming, <laughs> which was what, 2015? But, uh, but then that's when it was, so there was a, a while that, that, you know, with MP3 sales and CD sales for sure, there was, people were buying music. And it was, um, there was a, a nice time there. But uh, looking back, I, what did happen was um, I stopped making, I stopped writing as much because I was so busy working with other people. And I enjoy producing other people's records, but of course what I love the most is making my own songs. So, but even this past couple years, um, we started, uh, so uh, Chris White is the director of this movie, Electric Jesus, is coming out, and uh, we met probably five years ago, and uh, had mentioned this script that he was working on. He said, "Someday, if I can make this film, I'd love for you to uh, produce the music for it." And uh, didn't think much of it, and then I heard from him, and now we're doing that. So I, I'd say about three years ago, we started writing and recording songs for this movie. And it's getting very close. I think we're up to <laughs> ten song, ten completed yeah. songs now. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I, I remember because I'm obviously I'm working on that w with you. Yeah, guys, yeah. And I remember when Chris mentioned you now, and, and it's about a hair metal band in 1986. And he said Daniel Smith <laughs> is gonna uh, help. You must with have the music. thought, why him? I literally, I was like, oh crap. <laughs> um, and I, I think I said, man. I love Dan. I mean, that guy is brilliant. But in my mind, I'm thinking, this is going to sound like Spinal Tap, kind of <laughs> weird, weird version of metal, right. or like right. some kind of experimental, strange, psychedelic metal. Yeah. You know, and then he's like, just wait. <laughs> you know, Chris, like, and he sent me one of the demos, and I could not believe how straight down the middle authentic you well, thank you very much so now i gotta ask you <laughs> yep. how what where does that come from how do you approach mid 80s metal so authentically well, i think it goes back to the love of songwriting as a start as a very as the very start and, and when chris and i were thinking about these songs um pretty much right away we got excited about the idea of these songs being awesome and being not jokey at all. Yeah, I mean, the joke is, you know, if it's a joke to you, it's not a joke to everybody, but there is something amusing about Christian hair metal mid-80s, you know, that's like, oh, okay, is that, is that, is that good music? I don't know. <laughs> For people who don't, aren't into that, you know. Uh, so let's make these songs really great and really, yeah, just something that people are surprised. I think it's much funnier if they're surprised they end up liking these songs. Right. People who are prepared to not like them. But those songs could have appeared on the California Metal compilation record alongside <laughs> Baron Cross and all those things, and you'd totally believe it. That's awesome. So did you did you listen to that stuff when you were a kid? Like, well, were you a uh, fan of that stuff, or well, did you go back and kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, you know, f fifth, fifth and sixth grade, I was a huge fan of... of uh, Def Leppard was my favorite band, Pyromania, that's when it came out. Uh, and so, uh, Quiet Riot, um, Twisted Sister, Rat, all that stuff. Uh, and then after that, I started to listen to some, some Christian music, uh, but not really much Christian metal. Resurrection Band I'd seen live around then, and they were great, they weren't metal, but you know, good, great hard rock music. 
Um, it was just a brief time, so it wasn't really so much that. It was some memories of, of loving that music as a kid. Um, but after that, I you know, just got into new wave and you know punk rock. And I try to, just as a music fan, I try to listen to all kinds of music and find things in every genre that I like. So there's that too. But I think for me, this, the study was, there was a couple months when we first started where all I listened to was mid-80s Christian and uh, and not Christian, uh, made, just made you know metal from the time period. Bands like Jerusalem mm-hmm. um, really stuck out. There's this band Messiah that was that that I Messiah Prophet. No, it's, they're just called Messiah. Messiah, okay. And uh, really and, obscure. <laughs> really obscure. Yeah, and I found them on these on these like just these kind of mainstream heavy metal uh, lists of like oh you have to hear this band. Uh, they're Christians, but they never made it. And so I found, I got that CD, and I actually want to cover one of those songs because there, there was a key, the opening track really was influential, the way I was thinking about things. But, and then I, with the songwriting, I was having fun with thinking about these kids, like, especially with, with Barabbas, where, uh, like, they would do this thing. And, we, you know, we tuned down to half step the way everybody was doing. So all the songs are tuned that way. Uh, and just getting in, the head of these kids listening to this music. But point is, I, I, that's all I listened to for probably three months straight. Last question. One of the things that always came with any kind of Danielson experience and seems to have been a hallmark of what you do is this connection to the community around you, whether mm-hmm. it's the, the label, the, the publishing, the, the artists around, what is the Sufian thing, and I remember the singing mechanic and all of the yeah, other yeah, artists yeah. that were around that. Yeah. Um, and you, you talk, you take it all the way back to being a kid and with your family. Yeah. Um, am I reading too much into it to say that that communal nature of things influenced the way you understand and express your own art and continues to be something that it seems like you're constantly talking about the community around you and is that yeah. important do you think for, yeah, well, for comes artists from... today to be thinking about because we're so oh, yeah. siloed now everybody's so individual it's true it seems like maybe there's something for people to learn about yeah I mean I, I think growing up in a, in a family of seven and being the oldest I always you know kind of was put in charge of my brothers and sisters and you know for better or worse which is not a good position to be in but yeah I think once Danielson once Tooth and Nail put out Danielson I felt so fortunate and so grateful and and then started to you know meet all these incredible people uh Glenn Galloway from Soul Junk I mean we became instant instant buddies and we Danielson and Soul Junk would tour around the whole country every summer and end up at Cornerstone year after year with the van glued to the top (laughs) (laughs) and we yeah I mean he talk about a soulmate Um, and then from there just we would just meet all these incredible incredibly interesting you know kids who were making their own music you know John Ringhofer from Half-Handed Cloud he he came and opened up for us in Tennessee Knoxville uh, uh, one time and and we loved his music and like hey hey let's let's help you you know put that stuff out and so it just grows you just meet all these interesting people and you want to help them mm-hmm. if you can you know i've also learned you can't it, you have to be careful helping people <laughs> uh but um it, it can come off arrogant too that you know there's that too it can come off like oh i need your help <laughs> like, no i'm no, i'm really just trying to 
but whatever. Uh, but it, that's, it was all organic like that. It was just, we would just meet all these great people, go to Cornerstone and you'd meet, I mean, there's a really great run of years there where all kinds of interesting music was at Cornerstone. And just people, you know, setting up homemade, CD, you know, homemade CDs or whatever, they're, you know, just they're playing on, uh, just next on the dirt road. It was really amazing. So you meet all these wonderful people and you want to stay in touch with them. And you want to work with them more. Sufian was somebody that you connected with back. Yeah, so, uh, it, and it was a similar thing where um, my friend uh, Melissa Herwald, who's now Melissa Riches, she was kind of an event coordinator in New York City, uh, just putting on these very odd Christian events. She, start, she started a festival called Christ a Go-Go. Oh, and she put it on at PS1 in New York City. And she had us headline. And she had a bunch of other bands played, play. And Sufian helped put that together uh, with her. They were friends. They were friends from uh, Michigan. Anyway, so that's when I met him. We were setting up and she introduced me to him and said, he, he makes music and you know, I got his first CD and, and we loved it and we stayed in touch and I, we, I, you know, he started touring with us, opening up and he played percussion for us on a, in a European tour and we just became friends, you know, and it's the same kind of thing and he would play those songs from Seven Swans opening up for us and they were just these gorgeous songs that um, we ended up recording in my house's breezeway every time he'd come visit. And then after a while, we had a full record and we put together Seven Swans. So again, it just, it, there was nothing forced or deliberate. It just, all, with all these relationships, they just happened and it was, and, and I love meeting new people. I love, I love hanging out with creative people. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. We're back with the True Tunes podcast. we're talking about outsider art and have already mentioned the amazing folk artist and preacher Howard Finster in the conversation with Dan, I thought it would be cool to talk about Adam Again's 1986 debut in A New World of Time, the album for which Finster himself provided a special painting. But the connection here between the music of Adam Again and the outsider and even the prophetic spirit of Howard Finster goes deeper than just the artwork on the album cover. There was something altogether different about Adam Again. My first exposure to the music of Gene Eugene, Ricky Michelle, Paul Valadez, John Knox, Dan Michaels, who was also a member of the choir, and Greg Lawless was their debut performance at Cornerstone 86. It was a hot afternoon, and they were playing the indoor stage, which was set up in a big metal barn. 
I had never heard their music before. In fact, it didn't seem that anyone had. But from the moment they started playing, the place went nuts. They were funky, they had a definite groove, but there was a sort of minor key, almost blues-based tone in the background. Gene's voice and his low-key presence embodied a sort of lament, while Ricky Michelle, the backing vocalist, danced with abandon. It was an oral, visual, and physical experience that, at barely 16 years old, I could neither articulate nor contain. I danced like I had never danced before. I'm sure it was a hilarious sight, and after the show, I rushed to their merch table to buy the record with the limited funds I had available. When I met Gene and Ricky Michelle, I remember fighting back tears that I could not explain. and is a tough record to classify. Many people compared it to Talking Heads, which may have had as much to do with the album cover's similarity to that band's use of a Finster painting for its Little Creatures record, as it was the choppy electric guitars and drum machine programming. But where Talking Heads were anchored solidly in the post-punk aesthetic of New York's club scene, Adam again always seemed to be coming from more of an R&B place. But it was certainly true that, like Talking Heads, Adam again was intent on being simultaneously thoughtful, truthful, and danceable in their music. Time opens with Life in the First Degree, an upbeat blueprint for what this band would offer not just over the next 10 songs, but the next 15 years. No simple answers, just a dogged determination to focus on hope in a life that is somehow more real and substantial than the decay we see around us. And production limitations notwithstanding, the music casts a wide net. One that includes references to everything from Stevie Wonder and Prince, to gospel music, to the great synth-driven excess of the 80s, from acts like Mr. Mister, Cyndi Lauper, or Frankie Goes to Hollywood. In the instrumental sections, we get hints of the kind of jams this band will perfect on future albums, and the funky frenzy they are willing to kick up on a moment's notice. Nobody understands The anger that's 
the song fades into She's Run, we are greeted by a frenetic, panic-inducing track about a runaway, another outsider. We get more of a sense of Gene's mournful vocal sensitivity and pathos, despite the energy going on around him. Your Line is Busy plays with programmed synths a la Pet Shop Boys or Human League, but adds that minor key melody atop the groove. Then, You Can Fall in Love opens with world music percussion and Gene's droning vocal before settling into a stabbing rhythm. Even with some of the most invitational and evangelistic lyrics of the set, they still come off as painfully realistic. The chaos is waiting at the door. certainly not a perfect album. It was much harder to make great sounding records with limited budgets back in 1986, and you can hear those technical limitations throughout these tracks. But for those who have ears to hear, there's something really special. At a time when many Christian artists had a triumphalist tone and were super eager to sound just like something at the top of the pop charts, Adam again was more like a house party for people on the margins. It reminded me then, and reminds me now, of Psalm 30, verse 11, which says, you turned my mourning into dancing. With Adam again, I felt like I was listening to music that was crafted right in the midst of that transformation. The dancing and the mourning was happening all at once. But as much as I loved that album, what came later from this band was absolutely mind blowing. But when you get through this place, it's just a reception room. You hang your hat up, you pull your car off in the lobby. The day they blew out the brains of the king Thousands were watching, no one saw a thing It happened so quickly, so quick by surprise Right there in front of everyone's eyes Greatest magic trick ever under the sun Perfectly executed, skillfully done Wolfman, oh Wolfman, oh Wolfman, how? Rub-a-dub-dub, it's a murder most found. Bob Dylan surprised us all when he dropped a brand new 17-minute ballad called Murder Most Foul on March 26th. It's his first new original song since his Tempest album in 2012, which would be newsworthy enough. But it didn't take long to realize that this epic, tragic tome was about much more than the titular assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's a reflection on the end of dreams and the way music challenges, inspires, and comforts us during those times. Dylan name checks over 60 different artists or songs. Here Dylan is your DJ, serving up a playlist for the end of an era. 
And as much as this is ostensibly about the end of America's Camelot, it's impossible not to draw parallels to the moment we are in right now. What's new, pussycat? What I say? I said the soul of a nation will turn away. And it's beginning to go into a slow decay And that it's 36 hours past judgment day What is coronavirus killing right now? What is this bullet doing to us? Beyond the actual victims, what ideas or ideals are being shaken? Some, no doubt, deserve to be. Some, however, may be collateral damage. We are going to need music and art to help us feel our way through this season. Dylan has started it for us. Are you writing during these quarantine days? I would love to hear those songs. Please send them. Murder Most Foul is available everywhere. Please, even if you don't consider yourself a Dylan fan, take some time with this song. If you're interested, you can find a playlist of 66 or more of the songs he references listed on the True Tunes profile on Spotify and at truetunes.com. It ain't misty for me And that old devil moon Play anything goes And Memphis in June Play lonely at the top And lonely at the brave Play it for Houdini Spinning around his grave Play Jelly Roll Morton Play Lucille Play deep in a dream and play driving wheel. Play bootleg Sonata in F sharp. And the key to the highway for the king of the heart. Play marching through Georgia in Dunbarton Strokes. Play darkness and death will come when it comes. They love me or leave me by the great bird power Play the bloodstained banner, play murder most foul As I climb up on my soapbox this time, I'm thinking about the power of outsiders. Outsiders have freedom to shake things up. They aren't as burdened by the investments of power and privilege. They can't worship at the altar of tradition because they don't know the local traditions. As long as they aren't invaders, they can pretty much be forgiven for any number of encroachments and their beliefs and customs will be seen as curious and interesting, not at all threatening. For most of my life, I have wanted to see music with a spiritual, even gospel perspective be taken more seriously by folks in general and not just enjoyed by Christians. But after 35 years working in and around the Christian music industry, my opinion remains that most Christian music sounds like it is made exclusively for Christians, outsiders not welcome. There has often been a tone to it that those outside the club just can't relate to. That kind of music has never been very interesting to me. 
In fact, it often upsets me. Sometimes it has just been because the music was bad, but sometimes there was something else going on. Something like empire building. Instead of sounding like songs of beauty and grace being sung by grateful strangers in a strange land, they came off like slogans, graceless ad copy for a very different kind of kingdom than the one Jesus seemed to have been initiating. But the exceptions to that have always been so interesting and exciting. And as an artist myself, and as a fan of great music, books, film, and visual art, I would much rather create and support work that is as accessible as possible, but still challenging. So, one of the themes you have probably already noticed here on the podcast, and will continue to hear me talk about as we have these conversations, is how can we be good, creative neighbors? How can we be a part of the ongoing cultural conversation and not simply purveyors of niche products designed to generate a profit by reinforcing a certain worldview or perspective to a subculture? It seems to me that Daniel Smith is giving us one example of that kind of success. His work continues to be recognized by people with all kinds of spiritual beliefs and no beliefs, and it doesn't require any kind of compromise on his part. In fact, from a lyrical perspective, his music is more provocative and theologically clear than a lot of mainstream Christian music. But, and this is a major difference I think, Dan comes at this, like Howard Finster and Bob Dylan to an extent, like more of an outsider. Where much of Christian culture, especially in America, operates with a certain swagger, a certain sense of empowerment and entitlement, outsiders are necessarily humbler. It's the difference between Christendom, the idea that the gospel should be about running the material world, enforcing policies and protecting a certain quality of life for those in power, and what I believe is the actual calling of Christ, which is simply to love one another, to love God, to put each other's needs above our own, and as it says so often throughout the Bible, to not be too in love with this world. In our holy book, we are often referred to as strangers, as sojourners, exiles, and citizens of another kingdom. Maybe if we approached our art and this good news as outsiders with a message of grace, as opposed to insiders or occupiers entitled to what we have, we might find more people interested in listening to our songs and our stories. Instead of using music to colonize and propagandize, we should be using it to charm people, to thrill them, and to make them dance amidst their mourning. But, and this is important, this can't be a put-on. It has to start with an internal understanding that we actually are outsiders, that aside from some undeserved grace bestowed on us by a loving God, we are just as lost as everyone else. When we can be honest, first with ourselves and then with everyone else about our fears, our questions, our frustrations, and our pain, They'll want to hear about our joys and our observations of beauty and meaning as well. Deep down, we all want to be seen, to be known by others, and to know others. We're all outsiders in that way, looking for the door. There's power in recognizing that, embracing it, and looking around to find everyone else standing out there with us. Then we start singing our good, true, and beautiful songs and see who starts singing along. And one last thought on the music of John Prine, Bill Withers, and how I see that fitting into the true tunes ethos. Neither of those artists ever did what anyone would specifically call Christian music. 
Prime frequently skewered what he saw as the hypocrisy of institutional religion and the incongruities he saw between the teachings of Jesus and the positions of the American church. Withers managed to tap into the uplifting, almost humanistic side of the power of music, giving his songs a spiritual sound without getting specific about things like dogma. But I was a young teen when both of these artists' music first came to my attention, and I remember sensing that the path they were on, the journey they were modeling for me as a young songwriter, was one of the pursuit of empathy and truth. If the God I believed in was as loving and good as I suspected he was, I could trust him on that path instead of making certain prerequisites about what we were allowed to explore and discuss along it. Artists like John Prine, Bruce Coburn, John Hyatt, Bob Dylan, Emmylou Harris, and modern voices in their wake, like Brandy Carlisle and the Avett Brothers, continue to challenge, inspire, and provoke me along my path. If you're not familiar with their music, I really hope you will become so as soon as possible. Alright, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. As always, I want to thank my comrade, co-conspirator, editor, and producer Bruce Brown for all of his help making the show sound so good. I also want to thank Daniel Smith for taking time to talk with us and for sending us some great Danielson music to include. As always, all of the music used on this episode will be listed on the show notes page. Please spread the word about the podcast. Reviews, especially at the Apple Podcast page, make a big difference. Social media posts are great, of course, and we'll take all we can get. But if you can think of five or ten people that you know would enjoy these kinds of conversations, please send them a personal invitation to join in. That will make a huge difference. Everything in the True Tunes podcast is protected by U.S. copyright law and is the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. The program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT saying, take care of each other, listen to great music, talk about it, celebrate it, support the artists you appreciate, and be of good cheer. Sing songs of love and joy and live lives of peace. Be patient and kind and celebrate goodness wherever you find it. These are strange days, and they call for strange ways. Fortunately, we're some strange people, aren't we? Peace. Peace.